0: It's late April 1622, and 18 months have passed since the disastrous defeat of the Protestant forces of Frederick V at White Mountain. Frederick and his wife Elizabeth were safely ensconced in The Hague. At least that's what Ernst von Mansfeld, the elector's mercenary commander, believed. Mansfeld was busy at his camp in the Palatinate attempting to secure a better offer from Frederick's enemies to bring his army over to the imperial side. When suddenly, unexpectedly, Frederick V, who had slipped out of the Hague in disguise a few days earlier, appeared in camp, telling Mansfield to ready his troops. The elector had remarkably put together a new coalition to move on the Spanish forces still occupying northwestern Germany, including the young, scrappy, and impetuous Prince Christian of Brunswick and the older and wearier George Frederick, Margrave of Baden. One can imagine Mansfield quickly unspooling some maps over as many letters asking, How much is my army worth to you to various Catholic princes as as Frederick strides into his tent with like a fake mustache and a wig on? (laughs) The Margraves' troops were prepared to move northeast across the Necker River to link up with Mansfield. Prince Christian had been coming south, loaded with booty he had secured by melting down reliquaries from Catholic churches and from ransom he had scared out of villagers, spreading letters marked fire, fire, blood, blood among the terrified peasants demanding money from them. The idea was to link the three armies, finally pay the goddamn troops with Christian's plunder, then turn and push the Spanish back into the Netherlands. The margrave thought he could outrun the combined Spanish troops of Count Tilly and General Cordoba, but on May 6th, the two armies encountered each other at the village of Wimpfam and set up lines. Through the early morning, the two sides made indecisive attacks on each other with the margrave appearing to have the upper hand due to some well-placed and well-commanded artillery pieces keeping the exhausted Spanish at bay. Just as the Spanish line seemed ready to break, an amazed and supposedly speechless from birth in until this moment Spanish soldier pointed to the sky and screamed, Victory! Victory! as the white, ghostly image of the Virgin Mary appeared above the Protestants, and their line began to waver and break. Now, what actually happened was that a random
1: shot had managed to hit Margrave George Frederick's powder magazine, blowing his artillery up at a spectacular explosion and causing the disorder and eventual retreat of the Protestant line. The apparition of the Virgin was seen in the cloud of white smoke from the explosion drifting up in the sky. But it was a sign nonetheless the holy cause would prevail, the
0: Spanish would fight on, and the Protestants would retreat again. Elector Frederick should have known when enough was enough. He should have known to take a joint Anglo-Spanish offer to negotiate a settlement and restore him to the Palatinate. He should have known at White Mountain, and frankly, he should have known never to go to Bohemia in the first place. But the elector was still very young, 25 at the time of Wimfan. He was obstinate, sincere in his convictions, and basically kind of dumb. So he persisted. And between him and the Spanish keeping the conflict alive in the West, his cousin Maximilian of Bavaria's designs of the Palatinate from the South, and Ferdinand Habsburg's imperial designs from the East this thing drags on. First one year, then another, then another. Until the other great powers in the region decided this nonsense had gone on long enough. These Germans were in a spiral of self-destructive behavior, and they needed someone to step in before they hurt themselves or someone around them. Now, it was time for an intervention. Okay, so now we're in the thick of it. I will say at this point, it might be useful to review some of our players and where they're at and what they want. Because we've got Frederick and Mansfeld on the Protestant side, versus Ferdinand and Maximilian and Tilly on the Imperial side as our main poles of power here. Matt, can you describe the state of play in this phase of our conflict, what we can roughly call the Palatinate Campaign?
1: So the defeat of Frederick and the imperial occupation of Bohemia and the Palatinate left a number of enterprising princes and mercenaries with armies still in the field that had yet to be dealt with. We've already mentioned Mansfeld, George Frederick, the Margrave of Baden-Durlach, and Bentham Gabor of Transylvania. To this group, we must add Christian the Younger of Brunswick, also known as the Mad Halberstadter. (laughs) <laughs> whose devotion to the platinate cause may have been partially motivated by his romantic fixation on the electress Elizabeth, Frederick's wife. One of his battle
0: standards read, for God and for her. And apparently this was very scandalous to the Catholic armies that you would put some some broad's name right next to God on your banner. It's, it's true. Simping, it's, it's unseemly.
1: <laughs> now, Bentham Gabor is going to spend the next few years harassing Habsburg forces in Upper Hungary, all while attempting to extract concessions on religious liberty and a recognition of his claim to the Hungarian throne, but he's never really going to play a decisive role in the conflict. After the defeat at Wimpfen, the other paladins made for the United Provinces, where the 12-year truce had elapsed in 1621. In August 1622, having signed a short service contract with the Dutch Republic, Christian and Mansfeld fought the Spanish army of Flanders at the Battle of Flurus. Probably wrong, but deal with it. (laughs) They lost the battle. But their presence in the field forced the Spaniards to lift the siege of the Dutch-ass sounding town of Bergen-Op-Zoom. Bergen-Op-Zoom. Bergen-Op-Zoom, folks. It's Op the Zoom. She's opping on my Zoom till I Bergen. (laughs) The Count Duke Olivares, Spain's chief minister, offered a deal to Frederick that would have allowed him to reclaim his electoral position in exchange for disbanding his forces, but the Palatines refused. Fueled by looted Catholic treasure and Dutch subsidy, Christian and Mansfeld hatched a plan with good old Count Thurn. remember him? Count Thurn, Count Thurn, and Bethlen Gabor to reinvade Germany the following spring. But Tilly's Catholic League forces outmaneuvered them at every turn, and Mansfeld's chronically unpaid troops refused to move, leaving Christian force to retreat back to the Netherlands. But on August 6th, 1623, Tilly's army caught up to him, and Christian's forces were destroyed at the Battle of Stadjong. The war for Bohemia
0: and the Palatinate was over. Or so it seemed. But we'll get back to the war in a second. To throw another wrench into the works, the financial situation throughout the entire Holy Roman Empire was suddenly and rapidly deteriorating. In the early 1620s, the region entered a period of hyperinflation that is known as der Kippa und wipper <laughs> which uh, transliterated would be something like the clipping and whipping. Uh, The clipping of precious metals out of coins and the whipping of scales back and forth measuring coins against each other. Uh, Basically, various states began debasing their currency, shaving off sides to reduce the precious metals, or fully melting down the currency and reminting it with quantities of non-precious metals.
1: So price inflation had been a feature of European life for decades at this point. New world metals had flooded the continent and driven up prices steadily during the last century. But around the turn of the 17th century, that inflationary pressure was joined by another one intentional fraudulent debasement of currency now only a few major princes had the imperial licenses to mint the large denomination gold coins used by states uh, and though those concessions were tightly guarded now the thing is the minting of smaller coins the kind of uh, silver coins used for daily transaction, was uh it was more expensive it had a lower return on uh the investment of doing it so it was unregulated and largely left to speculators Mm -hmm. uh who realized pretty quickly that the only way to make a real money in the business was to adulterate the precious metal quotient of the coins so that they were literally worth less than their face value and then exchanging them for the good coins uh which aren't worth their weight of the actual amount of metal in them Now, while this sort of dirty pool had been going on at the margins of the empire for years, the outbreak of the war motivated a generalized frenzy of currency debasement as princely rulers and town governments desperately sought ways to fund their military expenditures and taxes. Unauthorized mints called (laughs) Hackenmünzen popped up everywhere from taverns to monasteries and began pumping out debased coins at a dizzying rate. The debased coins could only circulate within a principality for so long before people began to catch on. So it was quickly understood that the best way to make profits out of the arrangement was to send bad coins across the border to a different principality, exchange them for good, bring those back, and debase them. The state of Brunswick had 17 mints within its territory in 1620. By 1623, there were 40. Princes and merchants who didn't want to fully commit to the business could make a quick toller renting mints on a temporary basis to pump out what became known as Kippergeld. The trade made a number of fortunes and increased the wealth of already powerful figures like the Duke of Alba, the Iron Duke, but it also caused massive increases in the price of daily essentials. Between 1620 and 1623, there was an eightfold increase in the cost of food in the empire. This hit urban workers who lacked access to their own cropland especially hard. A food riot in that ill-starred fanatic city of Magdeburg in 1622 left 16 dead and hundreds wounded. In town streets, children would play with piles of worthless clipped coins. Eventually, the lack of good coins in circulation, real silver and gold was hoarded, caused the economic system to effectively shut down as merchants refused to accept currency they knew was worthless. In 1623, the most powerful princes of the empire arranged a fixing of an exchange rate to the Reichthaler that pushed the bad money out of the system. But the effects of what became known as the Kipper und Wipperzeit or Kipper and Wipper Time, were enduring, especially for those who had used the base currency to purchase lands that had been confiscated from bohemian rebels
0: foreshadowing. So, yes, you t- you've got your coins that are you know actually worth less than they are. All this land is for sale. You acquire a lot of it for a very little amount of actual money
1: yeah it's like getting it on the ground floor of crypto yes yeah.
0: exactly and this is running in the background of all of this and you know i want to link this to one of our main themes which is you know all these territories uh principalities struggling to make a state out of a hereditary dynasty and one of the things that they need to learn to do and are learning to do right now is control their currency
1: yeah and it's also showing the uh The truly destabilizing effect of like the intensification of like market forces emerging with the increase in the amount of currency Uh, because it becomes this situation where everybody with money invests to make more uh, and it becomes a free for all that leaves the actual public destabilized to the point where like the persistence of the imperial rule was threatened.
0: So this had all sorts of downstream effects, but one particularly dire one to keep in mind is the vast majority of the troops in this conflict are mercenaries. And when mercenaries aren't paid well, well, they have the guns and the peasants have the food. Mm -hmm. Matt covered the mop up of the original Protestant forces in the west of the Palatinate, I really fucking hate the word palatinate. It sucks. It should be the palinate. Or the, the palinate pal- would be so much that extra T it, is like you're fucking with it. Yes. I feel like I'm mispronouncing it every single time I'm doing it. Yeah. So Matt covered the mop up of the original Protestant forces in the west of the palatinate. So now we turn back to Emperor Ferdinand II, who at this point should be in the catbird seat of the Holy Roman Empire. The Protestant powers were not just restricted, but virtually eliminated in the areas close to Vienna, including the prized bohemia and a crafty Habsburg could have very realistically expanded and consolidated power all across the region. But Ferdinand, you know, Matt and I were talking about this the other day, that a huge portion of European history, European dynastic history really comes down to, you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them among its rulers. Uh, and this is especially true in revolutionary scenarios. Your Charles. The first is who we will get to in this series. your Louis, the 16th, your Roman offices, et They all probably could have gotten pretty decent deals if they had known when to quit. Even a guy like Frederick V could have gotten away with much more if he had just known when to take a deal. Well, here's where Ferdinand doesn't know when to take yes for an answer. Because in the aftermath of White Mountain, Ferdinand's justice came hard and fast for the Bohemians. He revoked the elective crown, taking it as a hereditary Habsburg right. The letter of Majesty that guaranteed religious toleration was revoked, and some said personally torn to shreds by the Emperor. Calvinism and the cherished Hussite ultraquism were outlawed, and only some tolerance granted to existing Lutheran churches. The leaders of the defensors were rounded up, though Count Thurn had sheathed his lightsaber and hopped onto a speeder bike, escaping <laughs> the Emperor's clutches. Uh, and forty of them were tried in a kangaroo court and quickly sentenced to death. Feeling lenient. Ferdinand only signed 20 of their death warrants, and on June 21st, 1621, seven months after White Mountain, they were executed in the town square of Prague. Only one had any final words for the public. Tell your emperor I stand now before his unjust judgment. Warn him of the judgment before God. Twelve heads were spiked on the Charles Bridge to remind the Bohemians what happens when you cross the Habsburgs. Across his realm, Ferdinand pushed further policies of harsh re-Catholicization, moving to restore bishoprics held by the Protestants, eventually including the bishopric of the mad Halbertsterter, Prince Christian. He confiscated rebel lands, which in Bohemia amounted to something like half the entire territory, and awarded those lands, as well as high positions in the imperial bureaucracy, to loyal nobles, and most importantly, to Catholics. Finally, the hour of Habsburg ascension had come.
1: Before Ferdinand could carry out the great and holy work of returning the empire to the bosom of the one true faith, he had to honor his agreement with Maximilian Duke of Bavaria, The emperor was fully aware that Maximilian had his own dynastic ambitions, and he had built up the Catholic League as a military force in order to pursue them. Uh, In the words of C.V. Wedgwood, Ferdinand genuinely believed that the Habsburg dynasty alone could restore Germany to the church, and that if the League endangered the stability of his dynasty, it endangered the welfare of Catholic Europe. Ferdinand was wary of the effect Maximilian's dynastic ambitions might have on the balance of force in the empire, but he was still militarily dependent on the Bavarian-led forces that had crushed the Bohemians at White Mountain. To fulfill his side of their arrangement, Ferdinand awarded Maximilian control of the Palatinate and Frederick's electoral title. The move roused fears among the other princes of the empire that they might be dispossessed with similar ease, but Ferdinand still needed to lean on Bavaria's military capacity
0: and had no choice but to empower this potential rival. And so that's our situation within the Holy Roman Empire. But this is the moment where this whole thing starts to escape containment and spiral outside the boundaries, such as they were, of Germany. So let's start looking at the German periphery, starting with our favorite stadtholders, the Dutch. The 12 years truce expires in 1621, despite some efforts to prolong it, as well as several moments of conflict where it seemed like it might collapse. The Spanish and Dutch resume hostilities on schedule. Someone presumably blew a whistle and they did a jump ball for who starts besieging who or something. During the truce, a political rift had developed among the Dutch along, you guessed it, theological lines. Remonstrance. An eddy of Calvinism that was slightly more laid back, found here it's among the well-to-do urban burghers, while the counter-remonstrants, also known as the gomerists, preferred a more hardline Calvinism and were supported by the more common folk, as well as the leading noble Maurice of Nassau. So uh, a lot of terms there, but it's basically a microcosm of what we're seeing everywhere. The urban bourgeoisie is tacking to a reform religion, while the princely Maurice Preferred stricter rules while asserting his noble prerogatives. Uh, so, Matt, what's going on with the Dutch as the war resumes? The twelve years truce of sixteen oh nine had not been universally
1: popular among the Dutch. It had been negotiated by a guy named Johan van
0: Overbarnvelt, Olden Barnvelt.
1: He was a, a civil servant at. He was the advocate uh, of Holland. Uh, and that was the richest and most populous of the United Provinces, and as such, the one that shouldered the largest share of costs associated with prosecuting the war with Spain. The Holland burghers that Olden Barnevelt represented had a vested interest in peace, as the war not only bled their coffers and taxes, but hindered the trade networks that filled their coffers in the first place. The peace process had been predictably opposed by the Dutch military commander, the Stadtholder Maurice of Nassau, whose base of power rested in the army. The urgent need to regroup and rearm eventually secured the necessary support for the truce at the time, but as soon as the paper was signed, the question of its renewal became the fulcrum of Dutch politics. On one side were the Olden Barnevelt's Burgers, for whom peace was good for business. On the other was Maurice and the army, as well as those who profited from supplying the army, farmers who'd grown used to high wartime food prices, and refugees from Flanders who sought a total victory over Spain that would secure the return of their lost property. Now, these folks being godly Calvinists all, there's no way that this conflict could possibly be waged on the basis of anything as crude as uh, material interest. Instead, the political battle over the truce was subsumed into a theological dispute that had been brewing for over a decade in academic circles, but turned into a fiery, occasionally violent public debate after the truce was signed. Jacobus Arminius which is the Latinized name for Dutch guy, Jakob Hermanzoon, as a professor of theology at the University of Leiden, had been publicly elaborating his disagreements with the Calvinist orthodoxy around predestination since 1587. After careful thought, Arminius had decided that Calvin's God, who branded the saved and damned at birth, had to be a villain, condemning as he did those who had yet to commit a sin. Arminius advanced a concept of salvation that emphasized free human choice to pursue God's favor through <gasps> virtuous acts. Mm-hmm. His motto apparently was, "A good conscience is a paradise." Now, this scandalized orthodox Dutch Reformed opinion and led to a series of public debates with a Calvinist firebrand theologian, Franciscus Gomarus. That's where the Gomerus come from. Yes, uh, he himself was a refugee from Flanders and he steadfastly defended predestination against the Arminian challenge. Arminius himself died in 1609, the same year the truce was signed, at which point the theological argument was overlain on top of the political schism between pro- and anti-truce forces. Olden Barnevelt and the Burgers of Holland embraced Arminianism, offering up a remonstrance, a challenge to the Reformed Church, elucidating their doctrinal disagreements. This began a vicious, years-long public war of words that sometimes spilled into actual war, with churches vandalized and preachers assailed at the pulpit. Maurice of Nassau, chief of the Gomerist Calvinists, painted the Remonstrants as crypto-Catholics who sought the ultimate victory of Spain, and he used his military influence to replace Remonstrant magistrates with Gomerists. After an abortive attempt by Holland to assert their independence from the rest of the provinces was crushed by Maurice's military forces in 1618, the victory of the Gamarists and the resumption of hostilities once the truce elapsed was assured. In August of 1618, Olden Barnevelt and his top supporters were arrested and charged with crimes against the generality, which effectively meant arranging the 1609 truce in the first place. That fall, a Reformed church synod met to decide the religious question at the city of Dort, inviting representatives from across the Calvinist world to decide the theological dispute. In May of 1619, two verdicts were read. Old of Arnevelt was convicted and beheaded, and the synod affirmed
0: the Gomerist view on predestination. (sighs) We love the Dutch. The Gomerist triumph over remonstrance at the synod of Dort is my new uh, cellar door phrase. It's so good. You get so much good stuff with the dutch there's something called the hook and cod wars that happened in the medieval era it's wonderful <laughs> so this is all very technical and maybe feels abstract but yeah you know uh, this is all deeply ingrained dutch history uh just this summer i saw olden barnefeld's walking stick which is still on display in the Rijksmuseum museum in amsterdam a reminder of how they got here but you know it's just another version of these competing bases of power playing out in religious terms we have the landed military aristocracy Versus the developing urban bourgeois class. Yeah. And they're both taking a theological position to justify, yes, their material interests in, in politics. Precise.
1: Now, Maurice of Nassau's noble house, the House of Orange, and the coalition that supported them were in full control of the republic by 1621 and enthusiastically resumed the war. Now, we see in this conflict the schizoid breach in the bourgeois self. We got the soft-handed merchants fretting over their souls and their good works versus the actual dispensers of capitalist violence affirming their salvation through acts of dominance. These will become the main poles of political conflict within the lower middle class Uh, in the protestant west going forward now what this means for our story is that by 1621 the war in the netherlands flares back up with the army of flanders laying siege to bergen op zoom remember Mm -hmm. and the dutch offering refuge to the palatine elector offering mansfeld his short military contract and resuming naval war with spain in the north sea the caribbean and asia The Spanish Habsburgs had shown little enthusiasm for supporting Ferdinand's holy war in the empire, but their fixation on reclaiming the rich Dutch provinces, as well as their recently established colonies, and the vulnerability of their supply lines to the army of Flanders meant they would have to continue intervening to support their Austrian cousins, regardless of the cost of blood and treasure. Count Duke Olivares, yes, yes, he had a counthood and a dukedom. So they called him the Count Duke. He was stacking (laughs) stacks. Uh, He was the Spanish chief minister and the royal favorite. uh, Wrote to his king, uh, newly crowned king, Philip IV, and said, I have always desired to see your majesty enjoying a reputation in the world equal to your greatness and qualities. Olivares believed that reputation was what kept an empire together, and he couldn't countenance the blow to Philip, the Habsburgs, and Spain's reputations if the low countries were irrevocably lost. So he committed the vast but poorly managed wealth of the empire to the task of reclaiming them.
0: Uh, And I guess we should mention
1: that Philip the Third died. Yes, the son of Philip II, the the, the father of Philip IV. Yes, just sort of this guy who is considered as kind of a layabout, oaf, ineffectual, Mm -hmm. Viserys the first type of guy. (laughs) If anyone's watching the new Gambo, Uh, his his a dull-witted hedonist, I believe you said uh in his on his deathbed in 1621 his some of his last words were claimed to have been oh to god that i had never
0: reigned <laughs> this is not what you want your king saying when he's looking no. back on his uh, his uh his reign
1: the Habsburg, uh the it, it's not just a genetic decline in the Habsburg kings of spain mm-hmm. it's just they they're they are just cursed their lives are all just worse after another like charles v was miserable his son was even more depressed <laughs> they just keep getting more and more bummed until you get to charles ii who is a uh gibbering uh um, circus freak yes
0: but you know it's the real tragedy of this period that uh by all accounts Olivares is like one of the best minister like most competent ministers in in the the continent he is every day he's he is
1: doing what his what philip ii was capable of doing which is micromanaging the empire the
0: problem was is that there weren't the sinews of state to mm-hmm.
1: actually act,
0: uh, activate his will. Yes. So then again, you see this conflict brewing and evolution happening of two people who are both in power, a decadent king who's a bit of a waterhead and doesn't have any idea or interest in running the state that he is in charge of, and this hyper-competent minister who is trying to build a state but doesn't actually have the authority of the king. And both of them struggling to centralize a country that
1: is run by... As by autonomous feudal lords, yes, like the the the, the Habsburg uh, dynasty in Spain is powerful by the standards of Europe, but it is still this collection of powerful autonomous noble fiefdoms that were brought together to kick the the Moors out, mm-hmm. and and which allowed for the formation of a single dynasty. But that dynasty was built on the assumption that local control would be held by the local. Lo- uh, Nobility within Spain, which means that while they're able to dominate the New World and become this colonial powerhouse, they have a very difficult time actually turning that into power Mm -hmm. because the local authorities are at every point uh, guarding their prerogatives. Uh, Olivares recognized this, and uh, in this period, in 1625, he imposes something called the Union of Arms Mm -hmm. on Spain, which is a, a minimum requirement of military contribution to the uh, armed forces uh the uh the army of, of spain was of course largely mercenary but the spanish core of it was drastically disproportionately from the uh noble mm, hereditary habsburg lands of castile right the the uh, catalonia portugal uh the Basque countries were all dragging their feet the local powers that be there were loath to give taxes or troops to the to the cause of maintaining the empire and so uh, Olivares imposes the union of arms this mandatory requirement uh in 1625 and it becomes a point
0: of resistance that eventually sparks into a full-on regional revolts and he has to revoke that union at, not too long after it's yeah. issued okay but the dutch the dutch the german protestants the habsburgs both austrian and spanish So far, our story, though sprawling, has been fairly contained to these few factions. But we're mid season now, and it's time to weave in a new character to stir up the narrative. Enter the Danes. We mentioned in passing that among the insane complications of the Holy Roman Empire was that foreign rulers owned possessions in the empire outright. Such was the case with King Christian IV of Denmark, who's also the Duke of Holstein in Saxony, and of course, he was a Protestant. With Ferdinand's harsh re Catholicization pushing up from the south and Spanish forces now virtually unopposed in the Palatinate, in 1625, Christian was elected the military commander of Lower Saxony, which is kind of the broad chunk of northern Germany between the United Provinces and the uh, Danish Peninsula. We'll get to more detail on the Danes in a minute, but their slow entanglement into the defenses of Lower Saxony is what will earn this period of the war its title, the Danish Intervention. Now, the totality
1: of Ferdinand's victory to this point had finally given some Protestant powers they had been reluctant to commit to Frederick's bohemian uh, fiasco to finally start taking the Habsburg threat seriously. They desperately sought a champion to support and to defend them. The ideal Protestant military response would have been for Denmark and Sweden to join forces for an invasion that would rescue German freedom once and for all. Now, Swedish-Danish rivalry for power and revenue in the Baltic meant that neither state would consent to cooperate with or perish the thought, submit to the orders of the other. And since the Swedes were occupied bloodily extracting themselves from a protracted war in the east with the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the banner of Christian IV of Denmark would become the standard that Protestant Europe rallied behind. Victory over the emperor would vault Denmark into the first rank of European powers. Subsidies and diplomatic support flowed from England to the Dutch Republic, Savoy and France, while the Northern German princes signaled support for a Danish intervention with the ostensible goal of protecting Protestant archbishoprics from being Catholicized. Building a sufficient military force was as always a struggle. And at first Christian was reliant on the cobbled together forces of count Mansfeld, who was still pinballing around Europe,
0: looking for supporters. Uh, we, we mentioned earlier that Ferdinand's big folly here is just not taking a deal. And here's where it's coming back to bite him because if he had not pursued this harsh counter-reformation project, perhaps the uh, Protestant princes would not have gone shopping around Northern Europe for a military leader to, um, to reignite the war in Northern Germany. Right.
1: Because those archbishoprics are power positions. Mm-hmm. Most importantly, they are patronage positions. Yes. And, this, and effectively, the Reformation in Lutheran Germany had simply taken the prerogative of appointing uh, uh, church officials from the emperor and given it to the local princes. And that is a power to reproduce your influence, be it your families or your network of supporters, uh, if you're a town that mm-hmm. appoints your own archbishop. So that you would think that a Protestant archbishop would be a contradiction in terms, but it turns out, the, it has to exist as this uh, point of power, this right. this 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 new this node of
0: social control within the area. And uh, you know, going back to when we were first talking about the Reformation, you know, it's very funny that they're like, "Oh, we we can finally read the Bible. We can make all our own decisions. All this bullshit that the Catholic Church has built up over the last thousand years is unholy. It's it's literally yep. Satanism." Oh, but we'll still keep that office. We'll we'll we'll, we'll take that. Yeah, we got to have a guy to to
1: wave his hand over everybody. Yeah.
0: Meanwhile, in France, though another new character had emerged, who would increasingly control the reins of state and direct the course of the German conflict, Armand Jean du Plessis, Bishop of Luçon, the Cardinal de Richelieu, was born in 1585. The youngest son of a lesser noble family, and unlike greater nobles, Richelieu's father owed his family's position to the king and he translated that into an ironclad sense of duty to the crown. When the Cardinal was born, his nursery was decorated with a banner that read, Armand for the King. Originally slated for a military career, the death of one of his older brothers caused his folks to reshuffle their priorities, and by age 21, Richelieu was made the Bishop of Luson.
1: They were like, you're going to go in the army, Armand, and that's like, Steve's dead? Uh, All right, fine, you're going to go into the church. Wherever there is power, just get up there and serve the goddamn
0: king. From a young age, Richelieu had almost boundless ambition and took just as quickly to his management of the bishopric as he had to his studies of philosophy. He ingratiated himself to the Queen Mother Marie de' Medici and in this way received his first post into the French government bureaucracy, being made the Secretary of War in 1616. From here, he slowly moved up posts, discarding his loyalty to Marie de' Medici as her son, King Louis XIII, came of age, became his own man, and developed his own trust with the cardinal. And in 1625, Cardinal Richelieu was made first minister to Louis XIII. Richelieu was absolutely serious, driven, relentlessly thorough in business, but also refined, a man of fine culture, and he even fancied himself a poet. Kind of your ideal image of a French guy. Uh, you know, Mm -hmm. Richelieu is one of the Frenchest men who's ever lived. He's mega French. And in that way, the thing you need to know about Richelieu is to him, France was God and God was France. The nation itself was the vehicle for the temporal advancement of divine will. And in Richelieu's cosmology, there could be no higher calling than promoting the prerogatives, security, and ultimate victory of France. Furthermore, the monarchy was the singular tool with which the French nation's politics expressed itself. And so, the consolidating and strengthening of the power of the monarchy, the single-minded pursuit of French interests, the championing of the will of God, these were all one and the same, and that philosophy would guide his seemingly cynical and theologically amorphous policies. Now, Richelieu's sort of proto-nationalist
1: Catholicism was the ideological structure buttressing the increasingly powerful French monarchy. It maintained the ecclesiastical structures of the Roman Church, which were crucial bulwarks of royal legitimacy, while permitting the pursuit of an irreligious foreign policy. This was a French tradition that went back to Francis I, allying with the Ottoman Turks to battle Charles V. The logic was straightforward. France's greatest rival for power on the continent was Habsburg, Spain. Both were Catholic powers, but Richelieu and his allies believed only France possessed the capacity and the capability to effectively defend and advance the Catholic faith. Therefore, any and all actions that disadvantaged Spain were sanctioned by God. In this project, Richelieu had the support of the new Pope, Urban VIII, who also identified the Habsburgs as the most pressing threat to the continent and the Church, not coincidentally Urban VIII, as ruler of the papal states, had his own plans for territorial aggrandizement and papal independence on the Italian peninsula that conflicted with the Habsburg rule there. So Richelieu established France as the diplomatic and financial headquarters of the anti-Habsburg resistance. The armies were being mustered in Copenhagen, but the funds and alliances were being mustered in Paris. And so it came to pass that the fate of Frederick V and Christian of Anhalt's pan-European Protestant military union depended on the wealth and power of Catholic France. Never say God doesn't have a sense of humor. <laughs> One of the reasons Richelieu had better success than Anhalt was that the English king, James I, had finally given up his nearly 10-year-long negotiation with Spain to marry his son and heir Charles to the Infanta Maria Ana, which had involved bitter
0: political recriminations and a botched princely trip to Madrid. The princely trip to madrid is very funny uh this is uh king charles uh the first and his buddy slash uh you know future minister the uh duke of buckingham it's it's very much like a wedding crashers deal you can see vince and owen doing these roles so chucky and bucky uh kind of take it upon themselves as james the first is trying to negotiate this marriage they're like we're just going to go to Madrid, and I'm going to seduce yep. the princess, and I and she's going to be make romantic. It, yes, yes, it's a very dudes rock it's like energy. Like that
1: freaking guy Shakespeare writes about. You yeah, know, yeah. you go see the Shakespeare play, It'll and be the be like lady that. talks to him on the balcony. I so, will talk to on the balcony. about bang, with boom! We got to
0: a So they bring a bunch of like royal jewels. Uh, they're they're trying to slip out of uh, London clandestinely. So they're literally like wearing fake mustaches, but everybody immediately clocks them because they're like trying to go in like rural fairies across the river, but they're acting like princes. Right. Yeah. They're
1: standing there. They're plumed and ruffled. And yes. They, they're scented. It's like, don't mind me. I'm just, just a humble merchant here.
0: Their fake beards are falling off. They yeah. They're conspicuously overpaying everyone. They show up in Madrid. Everybody is just baffled as to what's going on, and they uh, conspicuously fail yeah, to- Yeah, just
1: hang around. They don't get any more. They get jerked around by the Habsburgs, and then they just go, go home in a huff. Yes and uh, then they're like and then after that James is like fine we'll fucking marry her to France we're enough of this yes uh, this is too much of a headache i wanted i wanted to be the guy to fucking balance this all out but you're just not you're not meeting me here <laughs> so the french were able to capitalize on this disillusionment by arranging a marriage between charles and louis the sister henrietta maria gaining concessions for catholic rights in england and also binding england closer to the anti habsburg alliance this and other diplomatic entreaties bear fruit when, in the words of Wedgwood, on June 10th, 1624, at Compagnon, the governments of France and the United Provinces signed a treaty of friendship. Five days later, England entered the bond. On July 9th, the kings of Sweden and Denmark came to terms. On the 11th of France, Savoy and Venice agreed to joint intervention in the val Tallinn. On October 23rd, the elector of Brandenburg allied himself with the United Provinces. On November 10th, Henrietta of France was betrothed to the Prince of Wales. The stage was set for a Danish invasion of Germany, coupled with a French and Savoyard occupation of the Valtelline, that crucial Spanish lifeline connecting Habsburg, Italy, and the Low Countries. Protestant victory in Germany and the Netherlands would not damage Catholicism anywhere it was currently flourishing, but it would humble the Habsburg sufficiently to allow France to take its rightful place as defender of the faith and continental hegemon. In order to fulfill that destiny, though, Richelieu knew that something would have to be done about the Huguenots, whose independent political and military
0: power posed a standing threat to the supremacy of the French crown. Okay, so let's take a minute and appraise where we are here in, say, uh, January 1625. It's about four years after the Battle of White Mountain, where by all sane reasons, this petty power grab by some jumped-up Protestant prince should have been put down and passed into memory. A tiny, stupid footnote in the history of the Holy Roman Empire. A goof. A goof. He fucked up. Yeah, and little bungle. He, yeah, he gets gets defeated. He goes home. That should be it.
1: We're calling him the the Winter King, folks, because he only ruled for one winter. Yes, I forgot. Did we say that? I
0: think I think we mentioned. They that. They owned the shit out of him. Yes, he's
1: the, he's the Winter King. Just one.
0: But now we have a continent-spanning cross-religious alliance with actual financing and operational strength ready to make a play into the heart of the empire, and an emperor and Ferdinand seemingly running out of allies and resources. But Ferdinand did have one ace in the hole, ready to defend the integrity of the Habsburg Empire. For a price. A real Frankenstein's monster who, once empowered by the emperor, would be difficult to control and dangerous for all. But Ferdinand was backed into a corner with no other armies to turn to. And so, in his desperation, we meet Albrecht Wenzel Eusebius von Wallenstein, who was born in 1583 in Bohemia, the son of lesser Protestant nobles, and orphaned at a young age. Raised Lutheran, he studied in Italy, where he converted to Catholicism in the early 1600s. Returning to the empire, he joined Ferdinand's court before the Archduke became the emperor, There he married a wealthy widow who conveniently died shortly after, leaving him the nest egg of future fortunes. Wallenstein was an intense guy, prone to violent rages in his youth, that he seemed to channel into an obsessive drive for success in his adulthood. A consummate striver, power-hungry, exacting, paranoid, with little regard to the well-being of others, and always experimenting in methods. As he grew older, he dressed more eccentrically, mixing styles from all over Europe and accentuating his dark dress with a bright red accessory of a feather or a sash. He may have even sported some rouge lip coloring from time to time. He was noted for his somewhat unusual chastity and rather pedestrian obsession with astrology. Throughout his career, Wallenstein was noted above all as an exceptional manager. His estates were run to peak efficiency. He encouraged industry in the towns, managed the storage and sale of excessive crops, even developed schools and hospitals for his peasants to keep them working at maximum capacity and he would take these talents to the field as his military career grew. Wallenstein had deftly used the first phase of the war to massively increase his station, fielding armies and offering massive loans to the emperor, all while speculating on land and currency at the height of the Kippa und Wippesite. And by the mid-1620s, he was one of the largest landowners in Bohemia, with a massive debt from the emperor. He consolidates his lands into the Duchy of Friedland in northern Bohemia, and through his victories, loans, and favors is made count, then a prince, then a duke. Uh, I like to think of Wallenstein as a kind of Braun from Game of Thrones type, except uh, severe and psychotically focused instead of sarcastic and put upon. But still, he comes into the war as a sellsword and makes it out as a noble with a castle. Yeah, he's,
1: uh, he's much more bitter, though, than Braun. He's got a chip on his shoulder. He's, mm-hmm. a very, he's the Nixon of the Thirty Years' War because he does come from relatively low noble origins, Uh, and as such, he is never fully accepted by the higher rungs of the princely social order, and he knows that, and it always drives him towards a certain insecurity and resentment of those around him. Uh, I think it's notable also that he is a convert convert to Catholicism, which is true of many of the most able and uh, ambitious uh, imperial officers uh, and bureaucrats of the era. Mm -hmm. The the real young money-getters were the people who, who grew up conversant in the new market language of protestant europe mm-hmm. but recognized the potential for advancement in power that the catholic imperial structure offered uh and he was like pappenheim was that way it was it was the way for somebody who didn't have land perhaps and didn't have a business or a desire to be in business a way to make it in the world and wallenstein sure as hell made it uh and he is evidence that the people who are going to make capitalism out of this ferment are not going to be the uh Uh, beaten down and dispersed peasantry. They're not going to be the uh, contented and And inbred royalty. Uh, It's going to be the agitated middle strata. Mm -hmm. People who feel a fear of falling and also a desire
0: to advance resent all sides and are driven by it. And so it's interesting that, yes, you find these people like Wallenstein who are fascinating because they are able to synthesize two sides of something. Born out of the Protestant world, he not only is able to move up in the imperial bureaucracy, but he's also a land speculator. Yep. He knows how to make the money move. Yep. He knows he, how he to... He was one of
1: the guys who bought, yep. bought a bunch of... Uh, Cheap, uh, bohemian, confiscated of, land. Yep, with fucking fi- fake AB money. He used confederate money. He used <laughs> fucking a, a bag of fucking Chuck E. Cheese
0: tokens to
1: buy half, half of bohemia. bohemia. Yes,
0: That is a hustler. That's a young money getter. And so in early 1625, lacking other alternatives, Ferdinand agrees to Wallenstein's offer to raise an army of 50,000 troops. If Ferdinand would pay their commissions, Wallenstein would keep them fed and supplied off the land and his wealth, rights to booty and plunder, and broad discretion for prosecuting the war. Uh, We'll be talking about Wallenstein for a bit, but he is one of the most fascinating characters in this whole story, Uh, the essential bridge between, as we were saying, the feudal lord and the capitalist entrepreneur. Now, Wallenstein was a ruthless
1: operator with his eyes always fixed on the main chance. When news of the Bohemian Revolt had first reached the infantry regiment he was stationed with in moravia the troops mutinied wallenstein immediately shot the major leading the mutiny then led the remaining loyal troops on what amounted to an armed robbery of the bohemian estate's treasury before making his way back to imperial territory he was the last of the great mercenary captains who emerged with the downfall of aristocratic knightly combat and had been the dominant military force in the italian wars now by this period most princes of Europe recognized the dangers of empowering the sort of independent operator who supposedly waged war on their behalf, but had their own private agendas. Right. But the Danish threat gave Ferdinand little choice, especially since only Wallenstein had a plan for financing the war. Of course, you might say, well, what about the Catholic League? Of course, the Catholic League is there, but Ferdinand is not, in, he does not have power if his military is commanded at the end of the day by Maximilian of Bavaria. He needs imperial military power projection and that he the only place he can find it is wallenstein because he had harnessed all of these forces these credit lines mm-hmm. uh, le- uh, leverage them to do upfront payments to get guys in the door buy, uh, give them guns give them the food to get them on campaign and then let it take care of itself from there right now once Fallen, wallenstein leveraged the proceedings of his states to get his army in the field the war in the words of Cato the elder would feed itself Troops would extract the necessary food and supplies, known euphemistically as contributions, Mm. from the towns and villages they came into contact with, peacefully if possible, forcefully if necessary. Also, the period when corporate doublespeak starts emerging (laughs) into the vocabulary. No, no, these are contributions. These are
0: contributions. Uh, Yes, 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 there's a bayonet in your your back, but you're you're, you're given a contribution. Now, Count Mansfield had actually pioneered this technique during
1: his frantic zigzagging across Central Europe but Wallenstein would refine it to a grim science. This would have a significant effect on the strategy of the war as the goal moved from capturing specific objectives to parking your army in the enemy's territory
0: until they'd stripped the place bare. And so now we've got the whole of Europe drunk with the possibility of some final conflict between the dastardly Habsburgs and the coalition of the willing assembled to try to knock them down a peg. This all culminates in the Danish intervention. King Christian IV was a uh, hardy leader who had ruled Denmark since ascending in 1588 at age 11. Both uh, intellectual and brawny in that Scandinavian way. Karl -Karl Ove Klausgaard. Yes, exactly. He was a fan of exercise and drinking in equal measure. And his passion for women was strong enough that the number of Danish bastards became a bit of a joke on the continent. Uh, Christian was ambitious and competent, and perhaps his greatest fault was happening to rule at the same time as the even more ambitious and competent Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden, who we'll get more into next week. But as the anti habsburg coalition looked to the north for a leader who could push their prerogatives into Germany, at this moment in 1625, it's the Danish King Christian who fits the bill, as Gustavus decides to keep his fight up in Poland. God, it's just like there's so many Christians, so many Christians. We get it. You love Jesus, Christian Anhold, whose story is mostly over. Prince Christian of Brunswick, who's still around but minor. He's he's the one with the uh, horny God and Her banner. Yeah, and now King Christian, who is the main character of the moment, but he is also horny because of all the bastards. Yeah, and then there, the rest of Germany is only like five names. Everybody's John, George, Frederick, Christian. it, It makes me wish that we had some Adens or Masons or Logans in this story, just to get, keep things straight. My kingdom for a Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> on the borders of Saxony to the south, the Spanish under Count Tilly amassed their troops. And on the north, King Christian amassed his. Throughout the spring of 1625, a campaign of painfully courteous letters between the two parties and the Saxons themselves attempted to carve some kind of middle path. But to make matters worse, the bitter winds of the Little Ice Age were devastating Germany's capacity to support just its citizenry, let alone these increasingly massive armies now dragging themselves across it. It snowed as late as June, and a bout of plague flared up across Europe, taking a particularly hard toll on those armies. There's, of course, a Spanish army mm-hmm. uh, in the area as well, but again,
1: his cousins are not to have their own interests that are not always aligned with Germany's. Right. Also, they are laser focused on the Netherlands and very loath to give more troops than they absolutely have to uh, mm-hmm. to help them in Germany. However, once again, when it came time for action, a coalition of protestant forces is found to be wanting what a mm. shock promised funds from france and england failed to materialize as in england parliament refused to grant the new king charles revenues and ruchelieu in france was consumed with propping up the dutch
0: and checking the spanish in italy put a pin in uh, parliament refusing to get grant king charles uh, funds because uh, that'll come back into play uh, in a later episode indeed nevertheless the king
1: pressed forward with a trifold plan to check the spanish and imperials in northern germany Mansfeld would make contact with Wallenstein, then draw his forces to the east. Christian of Brunswick would outflank Tilly, then move on to Hesse to link up with more Protestant allies there. King Christian would advance south and engage Tilly head on while Brunswick and Hesse hit him from the rear. An elegant strategy, if literally any of it had worked. Christian of Brunswick, who had never had much more than the brass balls of a brave youth, immediately failed. His army <laughs> was basically some Shanghai peasants armed with. Iron rods, and when he got them to the border of Hesse, the landgrave there pretty sensibly refused to take up arms against the empire. Christian limped back to Brunswick and promptly died, reportedly of a giant parasitic worm. It would now be a God's turn to judge whether placing his name and her name on the same banner was an affront worthy of damnation. Mansfeld set out okay, but Wallenstein learned of his plan and sent a detachment to intercept. The two mercenary captains' armies met for the first time at Dessau Bridge on April 25th, 1626. And it's a classic instance of two professionals shaking hands at the intersection of their career arcs. Mansfeld, the seasoned veteran with his army he had now kept in the field for the better part of a decade, confidently orders his men to take the bridge. Wallenstein, with a brand new army and everything to prove, wisely places his shiny new artillery and hides his forces to conceal their numbers and wallops Mansfeld at the bridge. Later writing to Ferdinand, God gave me the good fortune to smite Mansfeld on the head. Mansfeld may have lost as many as half his men and began to beat it east, hoping to meet it up with, by God, is that Bethlen Gabor's music? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the Protestants are again trying trying for a Hail Mary, hoping that Bethlen Gabor will Leroy Jenkins his ass into the heart of the empire and relieve the pressure. This is some real Michael Mann shit mm-hmm. with Mansfeld and Wallenstein. Yes, Professionals looking across the, board, the battlefield at each other and game-recognizing
0: game. Absolutely. Wallenstein split his forces from Tilly and gave chase to Mansfeld, fearing the dark might of the Hungarian horse lord. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little, but I'm trying to make Gibor sound spooky, and Wallenstein still wanted to deliver a fatal defeat to Mansfeld. This gave King Christian of Denmark the opportunity to make a decisive... Oh, and he makes a decisive oopsie-daisy, because Christian moves his army south, making a play for the soft underbelly of Germany. Tilly, however, is able to get word to Wallenstein of the move, and Wallenstein sends a detachment to reinforce. Immediately spooked by this, Christian begins a retreat, and the Catholic forces are right on his heels. Tilly finally captures Christian's armies at Lütter, right in the center of North Germany. Here, in a decisive defeat, on August 26, 1626 the Danish army was crushed. Their cannons captured, many of their troops taken prisoner, and the king himself fled north to the winter quarters in North Germany. There would be several years until an official peace. the Danish designs in Germany, were effectively ended. And that's like, we're very technical there, but it's basically like the two armies meet in the center of Germany, Wallenstein chases Mansfield east, and then King Christian just comes down to the in the center of Germany, Gets defeated once and heads straight back north.
1: Yeah, glass jaw situation. Yeah, uh, they were not ready. They
0: they weren't ready for that smoke. They yes, weren't ready exactly. for the heat. And Mansfeld was now left stranded in southern Poland, his underpaid army on the verge of mutiny. Bethlen Gabor, what a shock, defers on aiding the Protestants again, and now moved for peace with the Emperor, possibly looking for aid or allies or a new client, possibly among the Venetians or Turks. Mansfeld moves south. But in November, he died, presumably of natural causes outside of Sarajevo. His work had taken him in a massive arc around the empire, from Hungary to Bohemia to the Netherlands, on diplomatic missions to London and Paris, and now down through Poland and the Balkans. And he was finally buried in Split in Croatia.
1: Mansfeld was one of the craziest-ass white boys of the entire Thirty Years' War. Uh, He would have thrived during the Italian Wars, playing both sides against the middle and piling up loot in the process. But at this point in history, the Protestant cause was just too poorly coordinated and underfunded, and the emperor was too stubbornly resistant to legitimizing a rebellion to really let him cook. He couldn't effectively play both sides because uh, Ferdinand didn't play along the way that the city-states and powers in northern Italy did during the Italian wars. Man, those guys, they were just able to play it like a fiddle. Yes. But here, Ferdinand wouldn't play along, and the Protestants never had enough money to keep his army happy uh wallenstein's hand was much stronger and as such he is able to push his luck much farther than mansfeld could ever have dreamed by the way uh, mansfeld born catholic or converts to protestantism mansfeld born catholic but he never converted to protestantism he never bothered he never bothered yeah but he worked pretty much exclusively for protestants but again that's why. You would have made a deal. Yes. See here? It really
0: feels like there like there should be like a, you know, in, in our fantasy version of this, there's there, there's like, got to be a diner scene between Mansfeld and Wallenstein. Absolutely. We need to see him. Where they're it. they're carving up a big bratwurst, uh, you know, on the, <laughs> uh, you know, in the, the, the tavern outside uh, Dessau Bridge.
1: Somebody's playing on a giant flugelhorn right in their ears. Yes,
0: exactly. And they're oh. they're basically giving the uh, we're not so different you and I speech yeah. to each other.
1: But Wallenstein's rise, well real uh, was already alienating powerful people in the empire. Now, his because his tried and true method of fundraising uh, and maintaining his troops' support was to reward officers with seized estates and stolen loot, which tended to piss off the previous owners of those estates and loot
0: and make observing elites fear for their own estates and loot. With the overwhelming repulsion of Danish forces, the death of Mansfield, the once again tattered and broken Protestant alliances the war seemed to be winding down. Almost all of Germany save the leaders of Mecklenburg on the Baltic coast and the fanatically Protestant city of Magiburg on the Elbe. And of course, the always obstinate but ever exiled Frederick V, who's still hanging out in the Hague saying, uh, yeah, no, guys, we're going to go back and get the palatinate back for me. Somebody guys, please, guys, somebody please do this. But besides those three power centers, everyone else was either now at peace with or actively armed by the empire. England had backed out of the Protestant alliance and was now threatening to make war with France, and France was in active peace negotiations with Spain. But the lands and people suffered. Still-raised armies leached wealth, food, and livelihood across the empire. Miserable harvests spread famine, disease ran rampant. In Austria, years of harsh recatholicization were beginning to show blowback. The wholesale destruction of church infrastructure plus the demanding occupation of Maximilian of Bavaria and removal of an intervening layer of Protestant princes had left the peasants dispossessed and alienated. And in 1626, over 15,000 peasants marching under black death's head banners with the words, it must be, marched on Linz and defeated imperial forces several times before being dispersed. Other electors and princes were pleading with Ferdinand to reign in Wallenstein. But at this point, his machine was basically self-running. By early 1627, Wallenstein's army had swelled to almost 150,000 men, the emperor's debt to him worth north of 500,000 gulden. At the height of the last phase of the war, a plan had been discussed to use Wallenstein's army to stage an imperial takeover of one of the German Baltic states with the purpose of obtaining a shipbuilding port. The idea was to both extend Habsburg dominion into the Baltic and provide assistance for the Spanish naval war against the Dutch. Wallenstein was camped in Brandenburg, and in the spring of 1627 was ready to make his move on the Baltics. The elector of Brandenburg, whose domain was already at the crossroads of Tilly's army, the rump of Mansfeld's army, and Sweden to the north, sent an envoy to beg Wallenstein to back off. The Generalissimo, who received the envoy in his bed, simply shoved his head under the pillows and refused to listen. Uh, What a drama queen. (laughs) Wallenstein would spend the rest of the year spreading his armies across the north and pushing King Christian once and for all back up into Jutland. And so... We conclude this episode much like we began it, Ferdinand and the Catholics in the dominant position, but simply never knowing when to quit when they're ahead. So Ferdinand
1: made Wallenstein the Duke of Mecklenburg, which was a provocation to the princes of the empire. They grudgingly voted to affirm Maximilian of Bavaria as an elector, but now the emperor was elevating jumped up Bohemian mercenaries by personal fiat. Now, beyond snobbery, the princes had reason to fear this figure, who now commanded the largest army Germany had ever seen, held high imperial titles, and was on the precipice of commanding his own Baltic fleet. A Spanish ambassador noted the danger, writing, the duke is so powerful that one must almost be grateful to him for contenting himself with a land like Mecklenburg. Burn on Mecklenburg. (laughs) (laughs) The emperor, in his goodness, in spite of all his warnings, has given the duke such power that one cannot fail to be anxious. While this is happening, Ferdinand is making his son, also named Ferdinand, thanks a lot Ferdinand, thanks a lot for keeping this simple, the first hereditary king of Bohemia, and he was pressuring the electors to confirm his son as the king of the Romans, which is a position that effectively makes you heir to the supposedly elected Holy Roman Empire. Uh, The spooked electors, encouraged by French diplomats, insisted that the emperor do something to curtail Wallenstein's power first. Wallenstein's position was undermined in July 1628 when his forces were repulsed trying
0: to take the Hanseatic city of Stralsund. And just by the way, the defense of Stralsund was led in part by a Scotsman named Alexander Leslie, uh, one of the many Scots serving as mercenaries in Germany at this time. Uh, just just a name to put in your back pocket for now, dear listener. After that defeat, there would be no
1: Baltic design And in the aftermath, the city fathers of the city of Stralsund made a pact of mutual protection with Sweden, opening a door for a later Swedish entrance into the war.
0: Now, here's where I have to think, you know, because Ferdinand is obsessed with keeping the title of Holy Roman Emperor in the family. He's going to make a deal with the electors to curtail Wallenstein's power so he can get his son elected King of the Romans. Right. But is there a window here for Ferdinand to simply say, fuck you, no, Wallenstein's my guy. And just take this moment to finally assert the imperial position as a real powerhead of the holy roman empire
1: it's possible but i think
0: what stopped it more than
1: anything was a lack of uh, trust in wallenstein to be able to uh, maintain a subsidiary position to him mm-hmm. because like the, the, the reality of the holy roman empire is that it is this formally powerful position that is, has access to relatively few real levers of power certainly relative to other competing states mm-hmm. in the area and uh, that means that there is it's greater it's it's more vulnerable, mm-hmm. uh, and so you create this monster with Wallenstein. Even if you give him everything he wants, eventually what he's going to want is your crown. Right. So I think that uh, at the end, even though he he was not really on the same page as uh, his princes, uh, he similarly feared Wallenstein as a singular figure. So no window here too.
0: Does Ferdinand ever have a chance to to really uh, to really make it, himself as, as powerful as the position of emperor needed to be to be a real autocrat? Everywhere he pushed to try
1: to find a handle is where he encountered enough resistance to bring down his efforts. Right. Uh, this is just this is what happens when you have an, a, decli- a secularly declining structure, and that mm-hmm. is what the Holy Roman Empire is becoming due to its inability to handle these stressors, which are cracking out through the entire system, starting, as we've said, uh, exothermically with the uh, Little Ice Age and then just expressing themselves at every social level. In
0: 1629 and 1630, Ferdinand makes two important moves one to assert his own power, and one to please his princes. In March 1629, Ferdinand issues the Edict of Restitution, a sweeping imperial decree returning all church lands purchased or confiscated after the Peace of Augsburg in 1555 to their original Catholic control. It is hard to overstate just how far-reaching this was. Almost every territory in north and central Germany would have its borders redrawn. Nobles who had grown rich off three generations of land confiscation would be suddenly impoverished, no matter what war debts they had incurred. Areas that had been so thoroughly Protestantized that only a few dozen Catholics still lived there would suddenly be under Catholic rule again. A simply massive declaration of imperial authority that showed just how powerful Ferdinand had become, and one that could only be enforced at the sword point of his army. And an interesting thing here is that The Edict of Restitution was originally Maximilian's idea, but it gets taken away by Ferdinand doing it, and Maximilian walking the tightrope supporting Habsburg Catholic aims, but he really wants to be the Catholic defender. Right, and that is why Ferdinand's hand is essentially
1: uh, uh, forced here. Yes. Uh, Because, as we said, he does not have sufficient faith in Wallenstein, and if that's the case, and he is going to pursue the Habsburg dynasty's interests, that means finding alternate sources of authority, and a counter-reformation... That imposes an imperial Catholic church Mm -hmm. within the empire that is a avenue for uh, imperial authority to reassert itself, namely through offices, staffing of bureaucracy, which is a genuine power center that can uh, compete
0: with princely authority and the the demands of the towns. Because again, there is no state structure yet, but there is a church structure that can fulfill functions of a state. And
1: Maximilian shows, Maximilian, by the way, who is... In diplomatic talks with France at this point. Right. They are negotiating treaties of mutual defense at this very moment. Uh, Maximilian, if, if Ferdinand does not try to make the Catholic Church a instrument of Habsburg authority, it will be made an instrument of Wittelsbach authority. Or richelieu and French authority. Or Richelieu authority. himself. Yes. Exactly. One way or the other, he's, he's, he. if he doesn't use it, he's going to lose
0: it. <laughs> In July 1630, Ferdinand convened the imperial diet at Regensburg. His chief aim was the confirmation of his son, again, Ferdinand III, as king of the Romans, uh, as well as securing military support for Spanish conflicts in Mantua, and as always against the Dutch. Ferdinand entered this meeting at the height of his power, but even then, he could not break the solidarity engendered by the German liberties of the princes. The electors declared it was time for Wallenstein to go.
1: And on the 13th of August at Regensburg, Wallenstein was relieved of his command. The generalissimo relented without incident, retiring with his back held straight, and going home to Bohemia. Hans de Witt, Wallenstein's banker, who had lent enormous sums to Wallenstein uh, that were collateralized against the fruits of future conquest, didn't take it so well. He drowned himself in the well of his mansion in Prague.
0: I know you love the story of uh, Wallenstein getting fired and his uh, banker immediately killing himself, but I have read that just given the timing of the things that he couldn't possibly have actually heard of the, the firing he was just depressed. It is true that he had constantly sent letters and stuff to Wallenstein being like, bro, we cannot actually pay for this. You're barring against yourself here. Uh, and so I think that the financial, the financial pressure was, but was part of it, but I don't think he actually, it is. It, it's disputed whether he actually heard about the firings.
1: One way or another, he realized he had backed the wrong horse. Yes, exactly. He realized the old adage of if you owe somebody five bucks, it's your problem. If you owe somebody a million, if you owe somebody five dollars, <laughs> dollars, yes, uh, it's your problem. But if you owe somebody five million Gildens, it's their problem because what are you going to do? Yes, it's it's it, it's all leveraged, and so yeah, one way or another, he realized. Uh, I don't know if I want to deal with this. This is too so, much. B- the bottom of
0: that well is looking awfully appealing right <laughs> yes. now.
1: So by midsummer of sixteen thirty. Ferdinand found himself testing the limits of his power. His armies had driven all challenges before them, and the Catholic Church followed in their wake. A Lutheran preacher wrote that, the disgrace has begun in Kitzingen, Hodheim, Reppendorf. These are cities in Bavaria. Of course. And in all the areas where the bishop has installed priests. The people are forced by the Capuchin monks and priests with great tyranny to renounce the gospel. They took all of their Protestant books from their houses and burned a great pile of them in the public marketplace at Kitzingen. On the fast days they entered the houses and searched the pots by the fires and anyone found with meat was severely punished.
0: <laughs> you know you ha- you really hate reading about uh hearing about book burnings in Germany, you know? Yeah, no, it's that's never a good sign,
1: but also just they're kicking in the doors to make sure you are not eating meat on Friday. <laughs> so it's tempting as we've said to condemn Ferdinand for overreaching, but in fairness, the events of the previous decade had convinced him of the need to neutralize the Protestant bloc within the empire. That meant reinstituting Catholicism wherever possible. Church revenues and offices and influence over town and village life could be key sources of imperial authority. If Ferdinand was to successfully turn his battlefield victories into a lasting shift in the imperial balance of power, he had to use every tool at his disposal. That meant filling bureaucratic positions with and awarding feudal titles to reliable allies, namely those who had supported him in the conflict, meaning Catholics. Also, the imperial had a problem of trying to pay the debts that had been accrued to secure the present state of affairs. Ferdinand owed money to everyone, from the lowliest pikemen to his top generals and the great banking houses of Europe. The only way to keep them happy was with promises of looted estates and treasures taken from conquered territories. That served as a powerful incentive to push as far as he could to secure his debts. No matter what Ferdinand's reasons were, his actions had the predictable effect of rousing the empire's disparate enemies to effective, coordinated counteraction. The Bavarians signed a defense pact with France, while the old Maximilian keeping his options open. Uh, the emperor agreed to an unfavorable settlement to the Manchuan War in northern Italy, which had worsened relations with his Spanish Habsburg cousins and with the papacy. The electors had forced Ferdinand to dismiss Wallenstein, his most capable officer, who had advised him, by the way, against the inflammatory edict of restitution and the Manchuan intervention,
0: which left him with a leaderless and dissolving army. And in the empire's far northeast, on the Baltic sands of the Duchy of Pomerania, a Swedish army under King Gustavus Adolphus, accompanied by a train of courtiers and diplomats from Richelieu's France, Britain, and the Dutch Republic, was establishing a beachhead on German territory, the immovable object of imperial military power was about to meet the irresistible force of the Swedish war machine. The Lion of the North had arrived. Hell on Earth is written by Matt Chrisman and Chris Wade. It's produced by me, Chris Wade, with editing from our co-producer, Nick Quaz. Show art and animation is from the great Ben Clarkson, and you can find a supplemental interactive atlas for the series by John White over at hellonearth.chappotraphouse.com. Our theme music is by Nick Diamonds, with additional music by Alessandro Takeshi, John Aaron's Tyrant King, Frederick Scarfone, and Austin Riley. Join us next week as terror sets sail from Stockholm.